at the risk of digressing before we get started, I want to read Psalm 16. So Psalm 16. And as I read this, I would argue that Psalm 16 is part of the prayer that the Lord Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So as I read it, have that particular scene in mind. Psalm 16 is uniquely a messianic psalm. There are some psalms that in part are messianic, some refer to David or other circumstances. But I would contend that Psalm 16, from beginning to end, is a messianic psalm. There are certainly statements in the psalm that we can relate to because the humanity of Christ was real humanity, and we can touch on that. But I say there is in this text, and the New Testament will verify this for us, particularly in the last two verses, that this is referring to the Lord Jesus. So with that scene in mind, let us hear God's word. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen to me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is the fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. O Lord, we come today in many ways into very sacred and very holy grounds. Our thoughts have already been brought today to think of that infinite suffering that the Lord Jesus experienced for us as he sacrificed himself for the sins of his people. And Lord, as we will reflect some on that same theme this evening, and now in this few moments that we have together in this session, we pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed at the realization of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. 
So guide our thoughts in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we move on to John, let me just make a couple of comments on Psalm 16. Say I'm arguing that Psalm 16 uh, is a prayer on the heart of Christ, on the lips of Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the very eve of the crucifixion. The last two verses, and particularly verse 10, you'll notice, is a verse that the apostles used, uh, one of the first sermons uh, that was preached in the book of Acts, taking Psalm 16 uh, and verse 10 particularly as the text, as they preached the resurrection. So the New Testament very definitely, very explicitly interprets verse 10 for us as being the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, let's translate this just a bit differently. This is where I'm afraid I will succumb to temptation and digress. But thou will not leave my soul in hell. It's a statement even as we heard uh, this morning, Christ descending into hell has been often misunderstood. Heidelberg Catechism <coughs> makes it very clear uh, that that descent into hell was the experience of hell coming upon Christ during all of his sufferings and particularly during those last hours of his passion. But I say the New Testament refers to this particularly and especially as the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. When you see the word soul, we tend to think of the soul as being that immaterial part of our being. And indeed it is. But the word that is used here actually refers to the entire person, body and soul, but the person. And particularly when you have a possessive pronoun with this word, my soul, it really is just another way of expressing the person, me. So for instance, God says my soul abhors something. Now we know that God is pure spirit. And God does not have a soul, a body part that we have, uh, but it's a reference to his person, I abhor. So I would, if I were translating this, yeah, I, I would have translated this, thou will not leave me, not leave me. Had I been part of the translation there, I wouldn't be here today, obviously, because this was done so long ago. But thou will not leave me, and the word hell here is the word, I'll give you a Hebrew word today, Sheol. I'm sure you've heard the word Sheol from time to time. Uh, it's a word in the Old Testament that occurs, I recall, 63 times. The King James translates it hell 30 sometimes. 30, I think it is. It translates it as grave 30 times. And three times it translates it as pit. Or so you have three different ways that the King James translates this particular word. Hell, about half the time. Grave, about half the time. 
and pit three times. Now the word Sheol has three different senses. It can refer to death in general. Doesn't matter whether you're righteous or whether you're wicked. Death comes to us all. It refers to the grave. And it doesn't matter whether you're righteous or you're wicked. You'll be buried. The body will corrupt and the body will decay. And just a few times it actually refers to what we know as the place of departed wicked spirits, but always wicked spirits, and hence why it's sometimes translated as hell. But given what we know from the New Testament, uh, it's not a reference to the place of departed wicked spirits here, but rather to the grave. You'll not leave me in the grave, nor, and here's the second part, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So how explicitly and how remarkably is this fulfilled in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The limp body of Christ put in a borrowed tomb and returned three days later, no worse for the wear. His body did not see corruption. So a statement here, particularly of the resurrection. And as we see this then in regard to the uh, prayer of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane, uh, a time of great struggle as we're going to see, but yet, here is, his, here is his hope. Yeah, I'll rest in hope, verse 9 says. He knows that what is going to happen on the cross is not the end of things, that there is a life that is to follow, the death that he is going to die. But a remarkable, a remarkable text. But in these few moments, and I come to very sacred ground here. We're in a passion season. Our message this morning was concerning the crucifixion. I see from Dr. Beakey's outline tonight that he's going to be touching, at least in part, in some way on Gethsemane, as our attention is drawn to the passion. It's a sense, again, as we heard this morning, that the sufferings of Christ uh, was lifelong. We think of the passive obedience. The passive obedience of Christ does not mean that Christ was just an innocent victim along the way. Passive there in the sense of his suffering, his suffering obedience. And the Westminster Standards particularly uh, talk about the whole miserable life of Christ, a life that was filled with misery. As he walked through this scene of time, this world that he created, a world that was polluted and corrupted by sin every day of his life, seeing uh, the hostility of those that were against him. I say his whole life uh, was filled with that suffering as he was touched, uh, then with all the feeling of our infirmities. But certainly as we come to this particular season, uh, all of that suffering reaches its climax uh, in these final days, the final week uh, of the earthly life uh, of the Lord Jesus before his resurrection. And the Gospel of John gives us an interesting, uh, an interesting map, if you will, of the last steps of Jesus. Uh, as we begin in the garden, 
You'll notice in chapter 18 of John, so I'm going to be looking here at John's gospel. Look at 18 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken, he went forth with his disciples over the book Cadron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. So we're going to begin here in a garden. And you know the we read of this and we hear it often from Gethsemane. He goes to Gabbatha in verse 19 or chapter 19, verse 13, and then to Golgotha. And then finally, at the end of chapter 19, we find the Lord Jesus in another garden. So from garden to garden, these last steps of Jesus. And I can only be suggestive here uh, in the time that we have together. But chapter 18, we bring, brings our attention to the Garden of Gethsemane. You have a little outline there that just in a very summary fashion uh, gives the essence of what was taking place uh, in each of these final steps of the Lord Jesus. And I say in Gethsemane in this first garden we see it as a place of struggle. A place of struggle. Up to this point this is not the first time that the Lord Jesus and his disciples went to Gethsemane. It's a place that they frequented often, uh, typically a resting place where they gathered together for instruction, for communion. But now it became a battleground. And there was a struggle that was taking place in Gethsemane that you and I cannot begin to comprehend. And certainly I cannot begin to expound for you. Here he endured unexampled pains, strong cries, tears being made with supplication. There, as he was so taken up in this, uh, in this spiritual struggle, uh, sweating, as it were, the great drops of blood, we know, indeed, the heart-wrenching story uh, of Gethsemane. But there was a contest taking place here. I say certainly in his humanity, in his humanity, the Lord Jesus was certainly anticipating what was going to happen uh, the next day on the cross. The suffering, the agony, that untold experience as he endured that being forsaken uh, by the Father. Uh, all of that certainly uh, was pressing upon him. But particularly, but particularly, we have, I think, all of the forces of hell. Talk about hell coming to the cross. Hell came to Jesus uh, at Gethsemane as well. I think we have here a picture of, of the intense struggles. Uh, every vestige of hell uh, coming now against the Lord Jesus. Remember, and this goes all the way back to Genesis uh, 3.15 in that first declaration of the gospel, remember that the seed of the woman was going to come and was going to crush the head of uh, the seed of the serpent. And there was a hostility, all right? But the very first statement of the gospel speaks of this hostility that is going to be between those two seeds. And as you look at the entirety of redemptive history, from that point right on, you have hell's attempt 
to somehow, some way, prevent the coming Redeemer, to prevent the coming curse reverser. I say we have examples of that, that hostility, that warfare uh, between heaven and hell uh, all the way through redemptive history. Had Pharaoh succeeded, yeah, had Pharaoh succeeded in killing all of those male babies uh, among the Israelites, there would have been no Jesus. But God intervened and God spared. Had Herod succeeded uh, in killing all of the uh, babies there in uh, Palestine trying to get Christ, had he succeeded, there had been no Jesus in terms of the atoning work. You have those times during the, uh, the life of Christ uh, where the temptation comes, jump off of this and see if the angels will spare you. Uh, crowds were trying to uh, kill him before the cross. Over and over again, I say, that the devil was trying to prevent the cross. The devil read the Bible, you know. He knew what God has said, and he knew this whole purpose and this whole plan of redemption. And the devil knew what was going to happen. And he does everything he can as that roaring lion, as that one that had uh, abandoned all sensibility in many ways, uh, tries to prevent the cross. I'm saying that in, in, in the in part of what was taking place in the garden, Yes, I say the struggles as Christ was thinking of that time when the Father would forsake him unquestionably. But I say there's a battle going on here, a struggle uh, between heaven and hell uh, and the prayer of Christ. From the very beginning, every step that the Lord Jesus took in life was knowing this is where, this is why he came. This is why he came. Uh, to fulfill the purpose, preserve me, Psalm 16, preserve me, O Lord. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. What a remarkable statement. Uh, my inheritance is in the pleasant places here. Uh, and for the joy that was set before him, Hebrew says, right? For the joy that was set before him. Uh, he endured, uh, he endured all the sufferings and all of the agony of the cross. And when you put all that together, the joy uh, the joy that Jesus had uh, was you and me as his people uh, throughout all ages, those that belonged to him. Those were the inheritance that God had given to him. So I say there's a struggle here, and I can't begin to describe it, uh, but a struggle uh, that in one way the devil trying to prevent the cross uh, and Christ praying that it would not be prevented, but yet I say struggling uh, unquestionably uh, with that agony of what we heard this morning, uh, those moments in the deep darkness, those moments in the deep darkness, when piercing that darkness came that, came that cry uh, as the justice of God uh, now is leveled uh, against Christ. But Gethsemane, I want you to see Gethsemane as a place uh, of struggle. And then the arrest comes, and in many ways, and, and we know from Hebrews, yeah, let's, uh, let's just take a look at Hebrews chapter 5 here, because I think this brings us to the point here of Gethsemane. You look at chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. 
right? So the prayers of Christ, every prayer of Christ has to be answered. Uh, and here, uh, be it deliverance from the garden, be it the resurrection, certainly, uh, is the answer to that prayer as well. Uh, but he was heard. So struggle. Then we, I say we come to Gabbatha. And you see this in chapter 19 and verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that say, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat uh, in a place that is called the pavement, uh, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, uh, the judgment place. There have been trials already taking place uh, as the Lord Jesus was before the uh, Jewish councils, brought before Herod, brought before Pilate, and now at Gabbatha, the sentence, here's the place of sentence, uh, where the decision, uh, the verdict, if you will, by Pilate uh, was going to be, was going to be uh, announced. And here's the irony. Gabbatha is great irony as puny man. You know, here is puny, puny and wicked and insignificant man now sitting in judgment upon this one who is the judge of all the earth. And what a tragedy. In, in what it reveals about the depths uh, of human depravity and the depths of human wickedness that can look at the Lord Jesus and see his innocence. And Pilate saw his innocence. Pilate recognized that there was nothing in this one uh, that deserved death, but because of his fear uh, of the Jews and whatever else, right? Here's this conspiracy fulfillment uh, of what we or an illustration, I should say, of what we see in Psalm 2, uh, of the rulers of this world conspiring together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed one. Uh, and now the sentence uh, is made. But it became a means. All right? And here again is the, here's the irony. Uh, we, we know that the whole cross work, uh, this whole purpose of redemption was God's eternal plan. This is the way uh, that God had determined that God had set in place from eternity, uh, whereby the curse was going to be reversed. It was the determinate counsel of God, but yet in the hands of wicked men. Uh, the disciples make this clear in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? Uh, I, I think it is. He was delivered into the hands of wicked men, but according to the foreordained counsel uh, of God. Uh, and God using even wickedness uh, to accomplish uh, to accomplish uh, his purpose, but uh, not in any way, not in any way uh, excusing uh, those that were so guilty. But here in this place of sentence, they, they took Barabbas. All right, they took Barabbas, uh, Barabbas, the son of a father, all right, the son of a father. And in exchange for that son of a father, they took the son of God sentence him to death. So the place of sentence, the place of sentence, and it raises the question, uh, it raises the question, you know, what, what uh, will you do with Jesus? What will man today do with Jesus? The sin, the judgment has to be made over and over again by every individual uh, as the sentence is made, uh, a decision is made uh, concerning the Lord Jesus. So Gabbatha, the place of sentence. Then Golgotha, as we heard this morning, the place of sacrifice. 
And you can see that then at verse 17. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Actually, it's an Aramaic word. Aramaic at this time was the language spoken by the Jews in Palestine. Golgoth uh, is the word for skull. The A on the end is the definite article, so it's the skull. It's cranium in Greek. It's Calvary. We get the word Calvary from Latin, but all referring to the place of the skull. Either a place that perhaps resembled uh, a human skull. There is uh, outside the city of Jerusalem to this day the, the traditional place of, of Calvary. A uh, little rock outpost that looks like a skull. You can see the insets for the eyes. It's at a bus station now. You remember you, you stay, get, kind of stand on a little platform here. You're overlooking the top of buses and there was uh, then Calvary. But whether that was it or not, we don't know for certain. It's called Gordon's Calvary. Whether that was it or whether it resembled a skull or a place that was so commonly associated with executions that skulls were hewn, as it were. But it was a terrible place, a conspicuous place. A conspicuous place where the sacrifice of Jesus uh, was made on behalf of his people. Uh, prominent place. This, is, this was the time of Passover, remember? So you're going to have people coming from all over the country uh, to Jerusalem at this time, one of the pilgrimage celebrations. Uh, and on a prominent thoroughfare, uh, here, here would have been these crosses. And my guess is that there were those that passed by that day as spectators uh, that looked at that one and said, is that, is that Jesus? We, we heard Jesus in Galilee. We, we saw some of the miracles. We heard, we heard his sermons. Is that, is that Jesus? And, and you had those that were turning away in horror, probably. You had those that were straining their necks, trying to see more. Uh, but a place of shame, a place of public ridicule. But it's there at Golgotha where we have a real sacrifice, a real death. A real death, a real... Uh, suffering, mental, cruel, physical. Uh, Godward effects, man effects. We, we focused our attention today uh, on, the, on the hours of darkness. Uh, you know, Mark tells us, Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified in the third hour, and then the darkness came at the sixth hour to the ninth hour. So you have the cross in the light, for three hours, and you get the cross in the dark for three hours. For three hours, it was there for all to see. They could see the suffering, they could see the bloodshedding, they could see the agony, they could see, and they could hear all the mockery, but then the cross in darkness, accentuating, as we again heard this morning, uh, of the wrath of God that was being poured out uh, against Jesus. So Golgotha, uh, the place of sacrifice. But my time is gone, but we come finally to the next garden, the place of success. The place of success. As the body of Jesus was now taken off of the cross, Joseph and uh, of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and they get the body of Jesus and now limp 
limp body of Jesus was taken now into this garden tomb. But a body that did not see corruption. For God raised him from the dead. Raised him from the dead is evidence of a sacrifice that was well accepted. A sacrifice that was well accomplished. The wrath of God that was well appeased. Because the resurrection, he he was raised again because of our justification. Because of what God has done in saving his people. Satisfied with Jesus. Satisfied with the death of Christ. Up from the grave he arose. So as we find ourselves in this passion season. First of all, shame on us if this is the only time that we think of the sacrifice of Christ. But our attention is being drawn very especially and very definitely to these last days of his humiliation. A couple of weeks we'll be celebrating the beginning of his exaltation. The gospel, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was raised again according to the scriptures. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we give thanks for the occasion that we have to focus our hearts and our attention upon these wondrous, these stupendous truths that defy explanation, defy our comprehension. But we do express our thanks, our praise for the misery that Christ experienced that is the basis for the deliverance from misery of his people. So receive our thanks and our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.